Hello, and welcome to Cruz Achievement's Markets Uncut podcast, your weekly insight into the topics and trends that we've been exploring for you here at Cruz Achievement. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you are listening on, and by following hashtag QC Weekly Comment on LinkedIn. I'm your host, Tim Horrocks, an investment manager based in our Leicester office. And this week, I'm pleased to be joined by Chris Beckett, our head of research, and Ben Barringer, one of our extra research analysts who specialises in IT stocks. Good morning to you both. Chris, we obviously had the inflation data for the UK last week. And although the headline CPI rate fell to 8.7%, this was above consensus. Is the UK alone is suffering from what appears to be high sticky inflation? And what do you think this will mean for interest rates and the cost of mortgages? Morning, Tim, and um, hello, everybody. Um, I think, firstly, all major economies are suffering from high inflation. That was caused by excess demand as the world came out of COVID quicker than um, central bankers and policymakers thought. Supply chain disruption, all exacerbated by the war in Ukraine. That led through to higher commodity and cost of labor, which we're seeing coming through in pricings with a lag in a lot of industries. It's good news that that's coming down from the peak levels. Part of that's just the maths of lapping the big increases in energy costs at the beginning of the war in Ukraine. Um, but I think what you were talking about in terms of sticky inflation, um, central bankers would term that core inflation. So ex food and energy prices, inflation is too high in pretty much all of the major economies in the world. In the UK, ex food and energy inflation is running at 6.2%. But in the US, the same core inflation number is five and a half and in the eurozone 5.6 so it's not it's not purely a uk phenomenon although the uk is slightly higher than the us and europe central bankers are tasked with lowering inflation to well typically a 2% and a sustainable 2% ish rate as their target for inflation in the states central bankers also have to look at full employment as well but they are a long way from their target inflation rate. That's why interest rates have been increasing. So tightening monetary policy, trying to reduce the demand in the economy, reduce the pricing power of the companies that we invest in so that inflation rates um, come down. They're a long way from their target levels. But what they've done to date, increasing interest rates from well, near zero uh, in all of the ma major trading blocks to um, the four and a half, five percent that we're looking at at the moment. It has a lag in terms of impact. So we're waiting for that to come through. And we're only seeing tentative signs of that reduction in demand coming through, sort of pockets of weakness in those major global economies. So um, the argument is that central bankers haven't done enough yet to bring down inflation, so they have to uh, keep putting up interest rates. And it's a clearer decision in the UK, where I think we have one or two further interest rate increases. It's a far closer decision in the US, um, with Europe probably somewhere in between. 
Where you look at interest rates and costs of mortgages, if you're on a variable rate, what the Bank of England will impact the price that you're paying for your borrowing directly. In terms of fixed rate deals, it's what central bankers are doing and how that affects bond markets. So longer term bond yields, which have been increasing as inflation expectation and short term interest rates have gone up, but it's not a direct linear link. So we've had that pressure on mortgage rates. Uh, against that, you've had a little bit more confidence in the UK economy and the UK government. And nothing could be quite as bad as the Liz Trust debacle last year that gave us that spike in borrowing costs. So some offsetting factors there, but looking at higher short-term interest rates from here, but hopefully not that much higher before we hit a peak. Thanks, Chris. Maybe the most shocking detail in the inflation data was the 19% rise in food prices, which is similar to the previous month. It appears that wholesale prices are coming down, but this is not reflected in the prices paid by the consumer. Is this just the food retailers profiteering? And how do you think their share prices will perform over the next 12 months? As an investor in some of, some of the UK supermarket companies, I'd love a little bit of profiteering. It doesn't sound that bad. Um, but actually, seriously, food retail in the UK is inherently a high volume, low margin business. Um, Tesco market leader make about a 4% operating margin. Sainsbury's with about half the scale make about a 2% operating margin. I don't think many people would call that level of profitability profiteering. They have to be very they, they have to be very technically skilled to achieve those low profit margins consistently. They're constrained in what they can do in terms of putting up prices by uh, they're still losing customers to people like Aldi and Lidl, the hard discount brands. So they can't profiteer without losing customers and losing profits. If you look at the suppliers into uh, food retailers, so the big global multinationals, Unilever make a 16% operating profit margin, Nestle closer to 17%. But again, these are these are competitive industries. No, nobody is forced to buy a Kit Kat. So if Nestle put up the price of a Kit Kat, you can buy something else. You don't need to buy that chocolate bar. There are choices that consumers can make that restrain that pricing power. If the companies that I mentioned, those big branded consumer goods companies, if they've been doing their job right, their product in terms of brand image and quality and everything that you feel about it is good enough that you're prepared to pay a higher price. And that's what we're seeing in terms of reasonably good volume numbers, despite big price increases. I think politicians should be quite careful before trying to impose explicit or implicit price controls that we saw coming out of the UK government pushing for a voluntary agreement. Um, price controls, if people can remember back to the 1970s or look at places like Venezuela, they normally end pretty badly. And um, I think politicians need to trust market economics and competitiveness to give consumers um, a good deal. Maybe there's a little bit more that regulators could look at in terms of agricultural commodity markets, particularly the role of aggregators, brokers and shippers, and how um, potentially market manipulation could work in those markets and how those commodities are feeding through um, to consumers. 
In terms of where I think um, share prices of the supermarket chains go, it's a good industry. It's not a great industry. And I come back to the, those low profit margins that I was talking about. You've got good cash flow coming out of the companies. But if you look at share prices and valuations, we've come a long way since last October when markets were very concerned about where UK consumers would go with mortgage rates spiking um, and borrowing availability. So I don't think, I think it's a good investment. I don't think it's a great time to invest in those businesses. Thanks. Um, we also had the new price cap announcement for energy bills. What does this mean for utility bills themselves and will this help the inflation data? I think um, it's good to see um, the price of energy coming down and that feeding through to the price cap. I think if you look at how consumers are going to feel about it, the typical household um, will have energy bills of about £2,100 after the price cap, down £400. That's almost completely offset by this year the absence of the £400 government discount or subsidy to energy bills. So average consumer won't see any benefit from the latest price changes, but it's a step in the right direction. In terms of inflation data, you get into some of the technicalities about how the Office of National Statistics have treated that government subsidy. I don't think it comes through in a reduction in energy prices, but that component will come down over time, just not to the degree that um, the headlines might suggest. I think if you look slightly longer term in terms of energy bills, you go back to the war in Ukraine, which seems to be approaching a stalemate. And at some point, hopefully the war ends and there has to be an end game and a negotiated settlement, um, what that does in terms of Russia's access to oil and gas markets is the big unknown. So trying to predict where UK energy prices will be, because we are very linked to European gas prices, depends on a lot of geopolitical factors that are very difficult to predict. Thanks. Um, on a different subject, the discussions in the US between the president and the Republicans on the debt ceiling seem to have come to an agreement in principle, although there are complaints from both sides at the extremes. Is it a done deal that the US will now not default? Uh, bearing in mind the freezing of expenditure, except for defence, at this year's levels, what do you think this means for both growth and inflation over that side of the pond? I think it's it's good that there appears to be a deal, and we've got quite a lot of a detail of it, but it's not a done deal. It needs to get voted on by the House of Representatives. Probably that happens uh, after the market close on Wednesday and the Senate next weekend. Um, it would be better if there was a unanimous vote in the Senate. But barring that, there needs to be um, 60 votes uh, in the Senate. So not a done deal. There isn't the same political party control of those votes that we get used to in the in the UK. Um, there are a lot of dissenting voices even now. There's still a little bit more time before the 5th of June deadline to get that through. Um, but if we assume that the deal um, as as published over the weekend goes through, You've got 2024 spending being held. Well, Democrats would tell you it's at 2023 levels. Republicans would tell you it's at 2022 levels. So some level of spending restraint 
and then 2025, a 1% nominal increase. So assuming a reasonable inflation rate by then, um, a small real cut in terms of spending in 2025. Um, that's a little bit of a headwind to economic growth. So the first takes I've seen from some economists knocking 0.1 or 0.2 off their growth forecasts uh, for next year. Um, in terms of looking out a little bit further, what they've actually or what they're proposing to do is not uh, increase the debt ceiling, but suspend it through to January 2025 that neatly falls into line to the next presidential cycle. So the next president, be it the second Biden administration or whichever Republican wins the nomination, will have a problem in terms of debt ceiling. Um, well, immediately um after they take office um so this doesn't go away it will periodically come up markets are relatively sanguine about what is a sort of the brinkmanship that gives us a very high impact low probability event and it's difficult for markets to adequately reflect that in terms of risk but it will give us something to talk about in two years time Thanks, Piers. We've certainly covered a lot of ground there. Um, ben, I'd like to turn to you now. The tech company NVIDIA announced its figures last Wednesday after the market had closed, and its shares rose by 25% overnight. Presumably something in the release surprised analysts and investors. What was that? Uh, yeah, good morning, Tim. Um, yeah, it was a, a huge move for what is now quite a large or mega cap stock. The stock moved up from 750 billion to, to near a trillion in terms of market cap. So NVIDIA, for those who don't know, is the is the designer and, and maker of, of graphics processing units or GPUs. Um, traditionally, these graphics cards have been used in gaming um, and they're very good for doing concurrent parallel processing when you're trying to do graphics in, in gaming. They also get used in things like computer-aided design. But um, back in 2014, uh, there was a competition to try and do better image recognition, which is one of the starts of um, uh, of AI, or one of the, the pursuits uh, of artificial intelligence, image recognition. Um, and a Ukrainian chap, uh, Alex Kravetsky, um, worked out that actually it was better to use GPUs rather than more traditional CPUs made by Intel and and so on. And so ever since then, GPUs have been the sort of leading area where uh, for, for AI research and for building large AI models. Now, at the beginning of this year, we've clearly seen the launch of uh, ChatGPT from, from OpenAI. Uh, and that has meant that the, the world has become much more aware of, of what AI's capabilities uh, are. So back to NVIDIA, they're the leading uh, maker of, of um, the GPUs. And they also have a software uh, system called CUDA, um, that lots of AI scientists use for developing and, and, and running AI models. We will have seen that ChatGPT was the fastest ever technology to 100 million users, and it's now somewhere like 300, 400 million uh, users. And consumers using ChatGPT is also meaning that businesses are starting to look at using ChatGPT or ChatGPT-like um, AI within their businesses. And so NVIDIA last quarter said that they hadn't seen much impact for GPU demand, but this quarter they said that 
the demand had risen very significantly. So they'd had large law orders from the large cloud infrastructure providers. So that's Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. They'd had large orders from uh, internet companies like Facebook and also Apple. And then they'd also had large orders from, from enterprise companies that were basically doing their own versions of chat GPT. Look at things like Bloomberg GPT, which is using Bloomberg data in a, in a similar chat GPT style. And so um, the guide for next quarter in terms of sales was expected by analysts to be around 7 billion, um, but actually came in at 11 billion. So that's 55% ahead uh, of forecasts and means that growth at NVIDIA will be very significant this year. And, and EPS revisions were, were very significant, up about 70%. And when I think about similar beats or, or and, and, and changes in guidance like that. The last time something like that happened was during COVID, uh, where Zoom, you know, the, uh, the video conferencing uh, software, they raised their guidance during, during COVID, the, the start of COVID, by 60%. And so you can see there's very clearly a big change in demand that's, that's happening caused by generative AI. You mentioned generative AI. What exactly is that? And is it something investors should be considering as both a positive and also a threat? Yeah, very much so. So so look, so generative AI is the latest iteration of, of artificial intelligence um, research. And actually, you know, this is nothing new. The algorithms, these scientists and companies are using, uh, go back to the 1950s, actually. Um, and it's only been the advent of cloud computing that's provided two things. One, ability to store data cheaply, and then secondly, to be able to process data cheaply. And so in the last sort of 10 years, with the advent of cloud computing, you know, machine learning and deep learning, neural networks, and sorry for all the, the, the techie, techie things, have meant that um, AI has come on in leaps and bounds. And, and generative AI, as I say, the latest iteration in this. And what we're really trying to establish is using the data to say, what is the most likely next word? The cat sat on the mat, right? And, and the most probable word is mat, right? And, and if you multiply that by billions and billions of parameters and lots and lots of data and very you know fast uh compute you can get the computer to essentially generate text or even generate images and so that's been a lot of the excitement around uh, generative ai you mentioned sort of pros and cons and yeah that's absolutely what you know we at the quilter tv research department spend our, our days doing so you know in terms of you know pros and, and benefits i've already talked a little bit about the chips that that do all of this processing so companies like nvidia uh, amd TSMC actually makes the chips for for Nvidia, and then also memory companies like like Micron. But you know, there's also you know, uh, positive read acrosses for those cloud companies that are doing a lot of the uh, the modeling. Uh, so that's Microsoft, uh, Amazon, um, and Google. And then hugely debated at the moment is the sort of software companies and some of the content companies, right? Because the base assumption is that if you've got generative AI built into your uh, software, then, you know, that's going to be positive for you. But the problem is it's lowering barriers to entry. And so, yeah, this, this threat to, I think, I mean, the threat comes across multiple industries, but the way I would sort of characterize it is, if you've already got the data and you've got strong data and you're already using 
um, some form of AI, then the next step to move to generative AI isn't too bad. The counter to that and the big threat is that if you are not using it or you are um, your barriers to entry in your industry are low, you know, there's lots of venture capital and startup money that can potentially disrupt your business model. You know, we're at very early stages in generative AI. And so the stock market is taking a very polarized view about how this could turn out for certain companies. You know, NVIDIA was up 25% on its numbers clearly a beneficiary companies like Chegg which is an education platform was down 50% when it mentioned that new user additions were slightly slowing because students were using chat GPT rather than their service and so it's another example and I've seen many throughout my you know career investing in technology where a disruptive technology comes along and it, the stock market takes time for it to work out who are the real winners and losers. But at the moment, um, on, on the content and the sort of education side, the stock market is very much taking a, a more bearish view and uh, selling first and asking questions later. Um, but yeah, very, very interesting. And I've also been talking to our, as well as our you know, uh, analysts internally, I've also been talking to the portfolio managers, our AIM fund and also our climate assets fund to work out you know, the implications for their underlying holdings as well. Thanks, Ben. Um, bearing in mind the current share price, do you think NVIDIA is still well positioned to benefit from tech advances in the future? Or do you think, and you may have already touched on this, there are better ways to get exposure to the tech sector? So we really like NVIDIA and we really like the GPU technology. The, the, the issue with the investment in, in, in NVIDIA is the, the valuation. And so it hasn't made um, our core models uh, at this time simply because it trades on, well, even on, on those new upgraded numbers, it trades on about 45 times next year's earnings. And we think that's a little bit excessive. We would prefer companies like AMD that trade on roughly half that multiple and companies like Micron that trade on you know, even cheaper valuations. We also like TSMC that, that makes those chips for NVIDIA and is a much more diversified uh, play on, on artificial intelligence. So yeah, I think NVIDIA, great business. Uh, there will potentially be some opportunities if we see a little bit of the hype coming out of uh, uh the, out of the stock but um yeah at the moment uh we we prefer companies as i say like amd and tsmc and actually amd last week did nearly as well as as um uh as as nvidia um in terms of you know other ways to play look our um uh our, our core two tenants of our investments in technology are based around cloud computing, which is the key ingredient for artificial intelligence. And then we also like cybersecurity. Cybersecurity is a very defensive uh, investment area for, for corporates, right? It uh, is a top priority for most chief technology officers, but it's also least likely to get cut. And so those two areas really form the sort of core thematic investing within, within uh, technology. And, you know, we think um, in by investing in uh, either directly in the US stocks that I've mentioned, you know, Microsoft, AMD, TSMC, Micron and so forth, or investing in the MPS building blocks, which have a direct exposure through there. Um, those are some of the best ways to for, for UK investors to get uh, access. There are some funds. We, you know, our funds team like, this, for example, the Polar uh, Capital Technology Trust as well. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the work that I do, um, it's best, I think, through direct equities. Um, thank you very much both for those great insights and to all of you for listening. Did you enjoy our discussion on the podcast today? We'd love to hear from our listeners, so please review the show 
now, wherever you're listening, and share it on your socials and tag us at Quilt Achieve It. To make sure you don't miss a future episode, tap the subscribe button. We'll be back next Tuesday, but in the meantime, head over to our website, www.quiltachieveit.com, where you can read the accompanying market overview as well as subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter. You can also stay up to date with our thoughts on markets, news, industry insights, and our upcoming events and webinars on our website or our social media pages. Finally, do you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts for our next podcast? Simply ask them via the weekly comments page on our website. We love to hear your questions. Well, that's it for today. So thank you very much, Chris and Ben, for your time and all of you for listening. See you next time.